Wow. Welcome to the 100th episode of School of War. I did not anticipate this little project going so far, and it's safe to say that things have really gotten out of hand. I'm proud of the work our team has done over the course of the last two years, starting with episode one, H.R. McMaster on the Persian Gulf War. I'm not going to tell you how many people downloaded that episode in its first week on the air. Suffice it to say that it's less than download our episodes now. A lot less. But many have gone on to listen to it and many other recordings that I think make useful contributions in an ongoing way. I think of the recordings that we've done with today's guest, Alexander Mikabaridze. Today's show is quick and fun on the subject of Ridley Scott's questionable movie about Napoleon, but our conversations in the past, more substantively about the Napoleonic Wars, in particular episode 51 on Kutuzov, show this podcast, I think, at its very best, looking to history for lessons that inform present-day strategic concerns. Same goes for Michael Nieberg on Vichy France, Andrew Lambert on Julian Corbett, and also on the Crimean War, New Strawn on Clausewitz, and many, many more. We've strayed into fields adjacent to military history and strategy at times, like when we talked about Putin and tyranny with Waller Newell, or about IR realism with Jonathan Kirshner. And we've talked a lot directly about the present day in some of our most popular episodes with people like Fred Kagan, Dan Blumenthal, Mike Duran, and Hal Brands, and more. The title of the podcast is, of course, a reference to Thucydides, who reports a king of Sparta saying, we should remember that one man is much the same as another, but he is best who is trained in the severest school. We don't offer training here, but I do hope to offer tools and openings into an education about war and statecraft and things related to war, which is in fact the severest school, so that we might all prevail in the future. Thanks so much for listening. Let's get back to the show. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. The people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. And in the streets, we shall never surrender. For maps, videos, and images, follow us on Instagram, and also feel free to follow me on Twitter at Aaron B. McLean. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. I am delighted today to welcome back to the show Alexander Mikabaridze, who is Professor of History and Ruth Herring Noel Endowed Chair at Louisiana State University in Shreveport. Alex, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and privilege, especially I, I, because you just told me it's a special episode. It is a special episode. It's our hundredth episode. The hundredth. <laughs> I, I, I would never have guessed at the start of this project that we would get to a hundred episodes, and yet here we are. I also think there's another milestone here, which is I, I, this is your third episode, if I'm not mistaken, and I believe you are the first three-time returner. We've oh, had wow. we, we have a growing crowd of two-time guests, people like, let's see, Mike Gallagher has been on twice. Lambert has has been on twice. And Andrew Lambert. We've had a number of two-timers, but you are, you are now, when this airs, you will be responsible for 3%, 3% of the enterprise that is School of War. So thank you for your service. <laughs> I'm almost like Messi, I guess. <laughs> Reaching <the club. laughs> um, and we have, we have kind of a fun one planned for today, which is that you obviously are a scholar of, of Napoleon and the Napoleonic era and Napoleonic Wars. And we have a Ridley Scott movie that has been attracting a great deal of attention that just came out. So we both went and saw it. 
uh, and I thought we could we could talk about it and about Napoleon and about history in movies as a as a as a as a thing to think about if that's if that's all acceptable to you. Absolutely. Well, look, I, so I, I'm I'm fresh from seeing the movie. I saw it, I I literally came, I'm coming from the theater to record this, so it is fresh in my mind. And I will just make the thirty thousand foot observation as a as a person who cares about history in a general way, but is certainly not a scholar of the Napoleonic period. And somebody who likes good movies and doesn't like bad movies, I thought some of the criticism was a little overheated. I didn't hate it. I didn't. I I I actually was regretting our plan this morning because the reviews have been so bad. I thought, oh, I gotta go see this. It was really kind of a three hours out of my day. I didn't need to lose, but I I, I enjoyed it. So that's my superficial man on the street top line response. What is your scholarly, serious, informed response? Well. <laughs> Let me let me maybe kind of do a two-part answer to it. I think there are some elements in the movie that I, I did enjoy. The despite all the you know commentary that Ridley Scott offered us on on the uh, kind of su superfluousness of the historical accuracy, you got to give it to him that the uniforms look great. He's clearly went out in terms of the pageantry of of Napoleonic era. I, I I actually found some scenes quite uh, spectacular, and I I think both Vanessa Kirby and Joaquin Phoenix have moments when they really really shine. But overall, Aaron, I gotta say it's it's a movie that is not working for me. I mean, yeah. I I suffered through it. <laughs> Did you suffer through it for aesthetic reasons, for reasons of historical historical accuracy or respect, or however you want to talk about it? Or, or a combination of the two, or, or something, think, something else. Yeah, I think uh, setting aside historical accuracies, right, and then again, not not getting into the weed of it, and we can we can discuss the the issues with that uh, as well. I think the the screen uh, the script itself is is not working for me because it doesn't offer any emotional growth for the characters. In fact, if you if you kind of pay close attention, there are only two characters and. Plenty of characters that make entrance and disappear. There's no no support really for a, a wider narrative of how Napoleon, at, at the age of let's say when he's fighting at Borodino or Waterloo, how is he different from the guy that witnesses the execution of Marie Antoinette? And I don't see that emotional curve. I don't see, for example, the exploration of their relationship between Josephine and Napoleon. Why why did she like him just because he stared at her? <laughs> and why did he stay loyal to her even after she cheated on him? In fact, that part when she's disloyal to him with Ippoli Charles is actually is one of the, I think, uh, kind of more interesting moments of the movie. And, and then overall, I think what is missing, and again, it's not about kind of presenting Napoleon as, as a romantic hero. In fact, that's one, I think, one of the problems I have with the movie is that it didn't really try to showcase the complexity of this guy who can be on one hand perceived by, as a romantic hero by so many and on the other hand derided as a tyrant by the other, right? The movie doesn't really, I think, grapple with it. But for me, that becomes an issue when in 1815, there is a scene in the movie when Napoleon returns and he encounters right, his troops or former troops who are now in the royal service in, at, at, at the small village of La Frey. And there, he gives him a speech and they switch side. And actually, I was at the movie with my colleagues, and after kind of two and a half hours of dealing with his kind of whining, 
my colleague turned around and, tur- and asked me, why would anyone switch sides for this whiny bitch? And yeah. I think he's right, right? Because yeah. that is the biggest issue I have with the movie, setting aside historical accuracies, is that it doesn't flesh out the character of neither of Napoleon nor Josephine. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that scene because that, that is, that is a, it's a famous moment, right? And I know there's a famous... There's a famous painting of this moment, probably multiple. Absolutely. Ones. One I'm thinking yeah. of, but I can't, you probably know the artist. Yeah, absolutely. The soldiers mobbing around, right? Yeah. So, and of course, Bondarchuk, Waterloo, right? The Sergei Bondarchuk's uh, famous movie, Waterloo, start with that scene. And yeah. the, okay. And it, it delivers that epic nature of it, that here you have these people who have a split second decision to make a choice to stay loyal to the Bourbon government or to betray it and effectively forsake death for the rest of their life for this one guy. Right. That's a big decision to make, <laughs> right? And, it, and, and it, this guy better deserve it, right? <laughs> that that was the that was the scene where because I, I I guess I I went in really expecting to dislike the movie, and then I found the opening to a- actually be more entertaining than I was yeah. prepared to to expect, and and so then I started sort of making I sort of started defending the movie in my head as I watched it. <laughs> the very scene that yeah. you point to, I agree completely. It does not it does not work at all, and it it's because and this is. This is something that I, I want to ask you about specifically is that the Phoenix performance of Napoleon is so relentlessly uncharismatic and it's it's always uncharismatic. There's no, as you point out, one way to look at it is, you know, you could imagine a portrayal of a Napoleon who begins as a dynamic figure and then falls into a kind of torpor, which I guess is sort of what Tolstoy implies in War and mm-hmm. Peace. That's basically what happens to his life. But even so, you would need to, you know, the scene we're talking about, you know, he, he basically talks a regiment to, to, into switching sides through one through one address. And yeah, you watch the address as delivered by Phoenix, and it's just not plausible. It's simply mm-hmm. not plausible that a group of soldiers would say, OK, we'll follow this guy. And yeah, that's I, think, right. I think. And so yeah. it raises for me sort of the, the broader question of, you know, as I was in my mode sort of defending the movie from its critics, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, the fact is. Napoleon was, you know, a, a thug and a killer and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, a politician who had real talents on the battlefield, who got who got lucky politically in certain respects. And so would I expect to see this dazzling sort of figure who 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 kind of romances me? I, I don't know. Maybe this is real. Maybe maybe he was a bit oafish like Phoenix portrays him. But like, what is what is the reality? What, what, where, where's the truth here? No. And so. Part of me actually enjoyed Phoenix's portrayal. There are moments when I, I think Phoenix delivers that sternness that Napoleon could, ha- you know, uh, had that that kind of expression of, of possible violence or possible kind of ruthlessness. But mostly, the way I think Phoenix approached the role was to to portray him as this bumbling, un- uncertain man who, I mean, the scene where Napoleon's mother comes and tells him, hey, I have this young mistress for you. And he stands offishly by the door, kind of looking at her, whether he should go or not. And she's like, yes, son, go ahead, do it. Right? That's not Napoleon. Right? Napoleon no. would not have needed that kind of thing. I mean, if anything, as you said, he's, he's capable of a uh, of, of great deal of ruthlessness, callousness. You know, this reminds me in 1811, in July of 1811, right? Actually, let me kind of preface this. For the, over the last about 20 years, we've been working on this remarkable project that was led by French historians, a group of French historians, to collect and publish as, as much of Napoleon's written legacy as possible. And so we finished this project, and there are over 44,000 letters 
published. And if you go through them, you get the sense of who this guy was because you read what he was capable of. And so it reminds me of July of 1811 when he, he's, he's told about two guys who were resisting Napoleon's authority. And so he says, the, the guy's names are Sifenti and Sassi. And so he says, in this letter, it says, all right, have Sifenti executed. He's a spy. He doesn't deserve clemency. But in Sassi's case, I want to commute his sentence, but take both of them to their place of execution, have Sifenti executed, make sure that Sassi watches it. And as he gets to the scaffold, I want you to read the commutation. And then there is a passage in it. Says, I want him to see with his own eyes how crimes are punished in my state. And, and, and there is this kind of coldness to this, right? There's a kind of rationality to it. And I don't see that in, in, in the movie. So it's not about portraying Napoleon as, as, you know, as, a, as a black, kind of the blood from a black legend, kind of the ogre guy or the Prometheus of the Romantic, but to show the complexity that this guy is capable of both. He's capable of vision and delivering these great reforms upon which modern France is based. I mean, pick any side of French daily life, chances are you will tr trace it to something that Napoleon done from finance to administration to to courts to to whatever even you know to things like fire brigade to uh, high school exams all of them can be traced back to Napoleon none of this even is hinted at in the movie and of course we don't ask movie directors to write dissertations right we don't ask them to produce these masterpieces that touch on all of it what we ask is to provide a storyline that is based, even loosely, but based on, on, this, on the actual event and the one that asks us to, to seek more. And I don't know if deliberately or not, Scott's movie actually doesn't do that, at least not for me or for people that watched it. And in fact, one of the interesting things of social media was that, of course, the scholars were kind of bitching about it for quite some time, but now even the people who were not necessarily involved in, in close study of Napoleon coming out and saying that the movie is just simply not a good, is not based on a good script. Hmm. So I think that's where we can agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it ends with this list of some of Napoleon's, it kind of mixes battles and campaigns with death tolls. And it, again, I'm sympathetic to this. Probably it's my, my deep sympathy to, uh, as I sort of, it's, 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 it's my deep sympathy to the anti-Napoleonic cause of the time. My, my dislike of, of, of dictatorial rule as a, and, and as a general question, but it did feel a bit like almost like it could be British propaganda of the day, <laughs> you know, like yeah, the movie, mean, movie almost sort of evokes that spirit. It's like, it's written by the characters in a Patrick O'Brien novel talking yeah. <laughs> about what, you know, how silly Napoleon is. Yeah. No, that selection of battles actually is interesting because some of those battles are not necessarily uh, a part of the wars that Napoleon declared or, or, or fought. You know, there is an interesting note by the side of Waterloo that says single day battle, kind of single day casualties, even though they have all other battles that they list are also single day. <laughs> so I don't know why they pointed right. to that. Out. Right, right, right. And of course, there is a long debate in, in academic circles to what degree you, Napoleon's shoulder, should shoulder the responsibility for the Napoleonic Wars when we know that, if nothing else, that uh, these are the wars that, if you kind of look closely, were declared by the coalitions against Napoleon. So 1803, Britain declares war on, on France. 1805, it's the 
Austrians and the coalition partners were declaring war on him, 1809, saying it's in, 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 it's not to say that we're excusing Bonaparte, right? Bonaparte's, but it, it's also a statement on Bonaparte's skill as a diplomat and a statesman that he he exploits peacetime to such a degree and to such an extent that he leaves the opponents n- no other chance but to res- to to essentially go out, uh, go um, to resort to this extreme measure of a war, which then they lose and suffer consequences, right? Yeah. And so I think this is where the big question I think I have is Ridley Scott, res- amazing director, responsible for movies that I adore, right? He, the man who creates the worlds like Alien, like Blade, uh, Blade Runner, for all the historical inaccuracies of Gladiator, Kingdom of Heaven, or The Last Duel, these are the movies I adore, right? Then gives us this thing. And I'm not sure what to make of it. Is it, is it him just giving up halfway through? <laughs> is, it, is, it this responsibility, is it the problem of a script? Because he yeah. did have great artists and he has a lot of money. And, and for some reason, the final product is not, it is not where his other's movie, movies are. No. For me, it's Black Hawk Down, I think, is one of the great movies of... Oh, my God, yeah. Post-Cold War combat. The wars of the the unipolar moment, if you will. Truly, truly a fantastic movie. That that is, if you read the book, that it's based on, you know, in its detail. Mark I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah, Mark Bowden, exactly. Excellent book. Dude, really brilliant book. And fine, fine piece of reportage that obviously being what it is, is is devoted to trying to figure out the truth of each incident as it occurred. The movie then, you know, it conflates characters, it moves things around, as you would expect. But I, I, I have never heard anyone suggest that it is somehow emotionally untrue or thematically untrue mm-hmm. to the story that Bowden reports, or to, to the extent that we can know, that, you know, what actually happened. And that that seems to be the, the charge here, that it's it's somehow, it's not just that it mix and ma- mixes and the facts up and takes licenses, which, you know, realistically you'd expect any movie to do. It's that it's yeah. somehow spiritually untrue to, yeah. to the period. And I think, that. yeah, and, and usually, and this, I, th- I think, I'm sure you've heard this, is that usually the complaint is that in most, you know, history is, is oftentimes so diverse and multifaceted and, and, and interesting that you don't even need to invent anything. That if, if, if you simply ref- kind of show what actually happened, you know, people might, you know, you will, you will, I think, surprise people more than by inventing anything. Austerlitz is, is a brilliant battle from start to finish without adding or inventing anything. And yet in, in the movie, it is so far removed from what actually happened that as to make it almost unrecognizable. And, and so once again, What's the point of it, uh, right? Or, or Waterloo. There's a million different ways you can kind of reenact Waterloo, but the last one I expected was with, with trenches. Right? Hmm. So why would you have trenches at Waterloo? Why would you have trenches with a body, those wooden pole, poles sticking out of it in, in the Napoleonic, right? In the, in the Napoleonic warfare. So is it for visuals, right? I mean, there is a question to ask, right? Why would anyone spend time digging something like this on, on, the, on the day of the battle after torrential rain or in, in the torrential rain? And so those are the kind of questions that I don't know why Scott chose to proceed, but it, it creates a kind of disjointed narrative. And it raises quite a lot, a lot of questions. 
Speaking of, of Waterloo, I, I personally, there were was, there was several of these capsule performances that I found, again, in my uninformed way. I think all I know really about the Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, is the Keegan, the John Keegan chapter on him in Master, Masks, Mask of Mask. Command. Years and years ago, I read it and it, yeah. it sort of stuck with me. I found it a pretty compelling as a, that's, I think it's Rupert, it's sort of unrecognizable. Leverett, uh, yeah. I thought he was excellent. I thought Talleyrand, an actor who I don't think I've ever seen in anything else. I, I've, to, to prepare for this, I will confess to a total failure here. I tried to watch the A&E miniseries about Napoleon. <laughs> yeah. years ago. 2002, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Colin got me a, a copy. Yeah. And I got about 30 minutes into it. And I just, <laughs> I, I, again, I will, I will stick to my original aesthetic judgment. I found this movie for all of its faults, which we are currently discussing at some length, watchable. I, yeah, I that A and E miniseries is unwatchable, unwatchable, and the John Malkovich, Talleyrand, oh the preposterous <laughs> figure, he's always sort of walking around with this simpering smile. And the reality, of course, of Talleyrand is that somehow he pulls off this series of personal coups in his personal career. In addition yeah. to coups diplomatically, he manages to stay in service to a series of regimes that you would think would not all employ the same person. And I thought the performance in this, I regret I can't come up with the actor's name, but the performance in this film, I thought had a kind of sophistication to it and a, and a confidence matched with calculation that I found quite plausible. I felt like if I had met the real Talleyrand, it might have looked a little bit like this. I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. No, actually, I, I think I, I would agree with you in terms of a portrayal, because I think the Talleyrand in, 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 in Malkovich's performance, I just don't buy, you know, don't buy this such. So I don't know. It's just an issue. Maybe not believing that Talleyrand could be it. I think in in this new movie, in Ridley Scott's movie, it's Paul Rees who is I think he's a Welsh actor who portrays Talleyrand, and I think he's he's a better choice for it. So it's just he does, but unfortunately he doesn't have get in I think enough screen time, and maybe in a, in, a, in a better script. It, it, you know, it, uh, you could have explored the relationship, which is a fascinating relationship between Talleyrand and Napoleon, where you see both kind of loathing and maybe hating each other, but uh, but at the same time having a, a respect for each other's skills, for each other's talents, which is why Napoleon employs him for so long and why Talleyrand, you know, mm -hmm. for many years later, spoke highly of Napoleon. But but in this movie, he doesn't get he doesn't get treatment beside the cursive kind of a couple of statements that he makes. And of course, you know, the last scene where Talleyrand is reading, kind of berating Napoleon in 1814 is, is a farcical. So it, it's, it's not true. So you, you, you mentioned that Austerlitz and Waterloo both simply, simply don't live up, that, that, that they, they fail not only as a matter of historical accuracy, but actually an attempt to be historically accurate would have been more compelling. Absolutely. Um, in the reality. Absolutely. Talk a bit about you know, and I realize this this question could be you know an entire semester's course. So take take it wherever you would like to take it. But yeah, what what if if all you know about Napoleon's way of war is the battle scenes that you see in this movie? What have you missed? What is it about Napoleon? The movie does seem to concede that that is the one thing that Napoleon deserves credit for as being a master tactician. What is it about Napoleon's war fighting that was so distinctive and important? Except that it is the movie doesn't really show why he's a master tactician as such, right? And, and Austerlitz, I think, is the most fleshed out of the three battles that Scott chose to portray. But the way he he treats Austerlitz is is is, is wrong. To start with, Napoleon never conducted reconnaissance in disguise and kind of weighed out on his own. 
Second, the whole sequence where, you know, Napoleon lures the allies on the frozen lake and then fires cannons to, to drown them in the, in the, in, in the frozen lake. It, it never, it never happened. What did happen is that Napoleon spent several days examining the terrain between the city of Brune and the village of Austerlitz. He understood the tactical advantages that the local terrain offered him, including the heights, the called Pratzen Heights, which in a kind of prevailing tactical right, doctrine you would have held in order to have a uh, superiority, the, kind of the, the, the position that would have allowed you to, to dominate the valley. But Napoleon, in the remarkable decision, chooses to give it to the enemy, surrender it to the enemy, to, to, to dis- mislead the enemy into thinking that he's weak. He, Napoleon also knows that uh, that morning, that the more you know, December, kind of late November, early December mornings are covered. The area is covered in the mist, so he takes full advantage of that to conceal his army. And most crucially, you know, if you read his correspondence, you see how he anticipates what the enemy will do, right? And say so on the battle, then he anticipates that the enemy will try to attack him on the, the right flank. And then he waits for a moment to then counter-strike, split the opponents in a two, into two parts and then smash and destroy them. And only at that end, at that moment, at around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, when, they are, when the Russians and Austrians are already demolished, that they are fleeing right, from the battlefield and some of them have to pass by the ponds, not even the lake, by the ponds. And as they do, Napoleon targets them with artillery. Now, a myth then emerges from there that these, you know, these Russians, these Austrians all drowned there. But interestingly, there's documents that show that Napoleon, after the battle, demanded dra- uh, uh, draining these ponds, and they drained them and they found three bodies. They did find 28 cannons abandoned by the shores. They have found 150 carcasses of horses, but only three bodies, right? And so to take this master plan that Napoleon had about kind of bringing the enemy down, splintering their center, kind of to dictate the terms to simply bring them onto the frozen lake and then drowning them, it just, it, it, it doesn't convey tactical brilliance that Napoleon really shows here. And what, you know, one thing that struck me about Waterloo in particular, though I guess you could see it a little bit in the Austerlitz uh, scene, is it looked like Gladiator. Like quite like the, I, I haven't done a shot by shot analysis, but, you know, the big battle that Gladiator opens with also a sort of I don't think I've ever heard anyone do too much criticism of Gladiator for, for its ahistorical characters. Obviously, if, if anything, probably even more widely, it definitely is more widely off the mark than Napoleon. Right. I'm pretty sure it doesn't end that way for Commodus in, in, in Roman history. But that battle, who knows what battle it's meant to be. You know, you have the two sort of long lines of troops facing each other. You have a lot of, a lot of wooden stakes, just like you had in the in the Ridley Scott Napoleon. Uh, you had a, there was a sort of similar rhythm to the scene. So he clearly has in mind, you know, a sort of a rhythm of battle scenes that works. So it's you know he's imposing some sort of tactical vision that's downstream of his sort of aesthetic system. But beyond beyond, I guess, just my question is is as much in terms of his own tactical decision making and suppleness. You know, what was what was Napoleon's system of war fighting? The movie can't even really begin to, to, to capture. What were his what were his innovations? Well, so if we stick kind of to 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 Waterloo. So the way Scott portrays it is that it, it, it's, it's a straightforward kind of open field, 
rolling plane, right? One, heights on one side, heights on the other, and then these two sides converge. If you, you probably remember that one moment when there is this long, long line of men, British line, almost like two miles long, they fire against French, French are in their line, and then they kind of close in and fire. That is not how Napoleonic warfare fought, right? Uh, neither side, neither the British or the French fought in that particular way. What the way they fought was a, through a combination of a column, line, combined arms. It, at no point would you have seen something like what Ridley Scott shows after the discharge of the volley, the two sides then converge and you have this hand-to-hand melee, confused, chaotic with you know horses and cavalry and infantry all thrown together. No, that's not how these battles were fought. To start with, the units would have maintained their formation. You know, contrary to the popular perception, very rarely you would actually have hand-to-hand combat, combat especially with these bayonet charges. Usually one, one charge, one side will try to charge, the other one will retreat, regroup, and then fight back. And, and then you have things like, I mean, at Waterloo, one of the iconic, one of the iconic moments of Waterloo is, of course, the defense of the uh, Chateau Hougoumont, which was on the British right flank. And here you have the men of the King's German Legion, 95th Rifles. I mean, this is some of the most heroic moments of the British military history. I mean, you probably have seen this painting of these men holding the farm gates against the French who are trying to get in. None of it. It just doesn't exist. For you know, worse than this. The movie shows the Prussians arriving from the direction where Hugomont is supposed to be, right? I mean, it's like all that heroism is gone. Prussians then arrive at the last moment as if as if to save 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 the day. So I don't know. I think overall, clearly Scott's interest was not to to show any resemblance of or no, no, no effort kind of made to to resemble what the battles would have been like. Some of it is reduced even to ridiculous, like at Waterloo when the British form a square, and the and the French are keep circling around it. Right? It, it, are we at the state fair on a carnival? <laughs> I mean, that scene is really awkward, right? They kind of they constantly moving around in a circle, and being yeah. uh, the British are keep, keep shooting at it. Of course, cavalry charges don't don't take place like that. What what was the sort of standard? countermeasure well i guess the square itself is a countermeasure to cavalry what is then the countermeasure to the countermeasure what what does cavalry do in the light of a square retreat and regroup huh? so they are not going to just keep circling around it because they know that it's, it's besides in the, in the movie scott suggests that some of the squares were broken when well, we know that it's not right and and now there is kind of this embellished views where the horse falls and flips right i mean considering how the weight of the horse, that's physically simply possible, right? So, but these are quibbles, right? We can quibble with Bondarchuk's Waterloo, but at least there, they are visually conveyed in such a way as you're buying it a story. You're buying it a story of the, the heroism of, of men on both sides, of the sacrifice. Here, it's, it's all an afterthought. Uh, and, and that thing, um, you know, with, with a sniper <laughs> next to Wellington at the time when... Yeah. No, no such things exist. Yeah. And, and doesn't he say something like "take the shot"? Am I? It was something like that. Am I clear to take the shot? <laughs> the shot. Like, I'm sure that's not in. You know, that's like America cliche. You know, SWAT 
special yeah. operations language yeah. from the current era. <laughs> right. I, I, I love the yeah. I love the fact that he didn't listen to Wellington ultimately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he takes the shot in the end. Yeah. Yeah, totally. There was another moment and it was so off. And it like there was a there was almost like an embarrassed titter in the theater when it was said. I, I'm actually curious if this is historical because it felt so off. And it's the exchange between Napoleon and I guess it's the British ambassador relatively early in the, the boats. War. Yeah, the boats where he says, you think <laughs> like it really isn't as crude as you think you're so special because you have boats. I think that is actually the line. Yeah, it's exactly. so it that, is. That, did he actually say it? So the scene actually actually happened because this is in 1803 and there is Napoleon deliberately. Actually, we know that it was a, a scene that he wanted to kind of perform, so to speak, for the public consumption, where he berates Whitworth and kind of provokes kind of, he wants a reaction from him. He wants to show that he means, that, you know, he, 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 what he said. But of course, he never said both. And considering Napoleon, you know, there's a lot of things we can say about him, but he's an educated guy. He's a smart guy. The last thing he would have said is both. He, know, he, he knows full well what those boats are capable of. Right, 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 right. The the movie portrays, I mean, as as you point out, there's really only two characters in the movie. There's Napoleon and Josephine, and the relationship is 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 the subject of the movie. I mean, that's really what the movie is about, and it's portrayed to the point where her behavior and his his responses to her behavior are are central to his decision making and prove to be, you know, of great historical significance. He's portrayed as coming back from Egypt because of reports of her infidelity. He is portrayed as as coming back Melba. Uh, from Elba. You know, essentially because he wants to see her. To what extent is there any truth to this? And to what extent is it all, all made up? I'll, I'll start with the second one. So Napoleon goes, he abdicates on April 6th uh, of 1814, signs the Treaty of Fontainebleau, guaranteeing his exile to Elba and 2 million uh, francs, which, which all of this is mentioned in the movie on April 11. And then he goes into exile. By the time he reaches Elba, Josephine is sick and she dies at the end of May of 1814. So that means Napoleon could not have simply left Elba in order to see her because she was already a year dead. Mm, so that'll do it. That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put that aside. And okay. of course, in Egypt, he he he's told indeed that scene where one of his kind of friends or, or officers tells him uh, about Josephine being disloyal. We know that that did happen, and we know that. It, it did provoke a lot of reaction to Napoleon. He was absolutely heartbroken. But the way he dealt with, dealt with it was not by quitting and returning. He did it by starting his own affair with Pauline Fouré, the wife of one of the junior officers in Napoleon's army, who became kind of notorious as Napoleon's Cleopatra. And it is only later on, right, when Napoleon in 1799 in August learns about the military setbacks that France has experienced during the war's second coalition that he decides to return. But I did like that scene where he comes back and Josephine is not at home and then she rushes back home and she finds all her stuff out. I think that that is a powerful scene and, and, and that did, did take place. So you mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, so you mentioned uh, Bondarchuk's uh, Waterloo, which I, I confess I have not seen. I've seen his uh, War and Peace, but I've not seen Waterloo as a, a, a better cinematic treatment of, of the period. What else would you, I mean, we can expand it out a bit from Napoleon as well, you, you know, on this theme of what, what historians believe filmmakers owe their audiences. What, what films either about the Napoleonic era or elsewhere 
really to you have succeeded by the by the standard that you set there. Thank you. And and again, this is where I think one of the biggest, at least on social media, where I was kind of uh, expressing my 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 commentary and critical commentary, I got a pushback that hey, this is you know this is not documentary. I know it's not documentary. I don't expect it do- movies to be documentary like this. And but it's just this movie is not working because it's just not a good movie. On the other hand, we have plenty of good movies that we can we can watch and and enjoy them despite all the artistic license that uh, has been taken. So, for example, one of my favorite movies or Napoleonic movies is called Monsieur N. And Monsieur N is a it's a relatively recent movie. I think it was done in uh, 2003 by fr- French director Antoine. Cunet, and it, it, it essentially reimagines what might have happened if Napoleon kind of organized a, a conspiracy to escape from St. Helena. It, it's a wonderful movie. It, it's both the script is brilliant, the dialogues are brilliant, all the characters are, are done right. And, it's, it's a, and of course, the ending is completely ahistorical. A spoiler, he escapes, right? <laughs> but, but it works, right? Or yeah. another one, again, one of my favorite ones is Emperor's New Clothes. That's a, it's a comedy about, again, Napoleon escaping from St. Helena, coming to Paris and becoming the most successful baker in all of Paris. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen this. Oh, yeah, with Ian Holm. I mean, that guy's, of course, is, he played, I think he's the only one who played Napoleon twice. And, and, and it's a brilliant movie. Another thing, the good movie that uh, can, I, would, I would recommend would be, for example, it's, it's a French movie, though. It's an, and unfortunately, not. I don't think it's been translated in English, but it's, it's uh, Eduard Molinaro's The Supper. And again, takes a lot of liberties. It's a, it's a movie about two men, two guys, Fouché, Napoleon's minister of police, and Talleyrand, the guy that you've talked about, minister of foreign affairs, sitting down for a dinner after Napoleon is overthrown. And they essentially are having a long conversation about what happened during the empire. And it, 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 there is no big battles, no big scenes, but through their conversation, through them kind of trying to outwit and out, outmatch each other, you can, you, I think you get better glimpse of what it was like to be with Napoleon than through two and a half hours of, of Ridley Scott's movie. And, and there are other movies that we can mention. For example, a new release, V-Dog, again, a French production with the wonderful Vincent Cancel. Again, based on real life story of, of, of a man who effectively creates the modern police detective service in, in Paris, Francois Vidoc. And it, it shows kind of Paris under underworld, right? And during Napoleon era and how these different gangs operated and how police tried to re- control and restrain them. Plenty of historical kind of artistic license, but overall it's a fun movie. Well, Alex, this has been fun. I, I, I feel like we would have more to talk about had it been, in your estimation, a brilliant movie. But it, but it, but it seems like the best we can do is point folks to, to other, other examples from the, from the period. Oh, oh, wait. I think Steven Spielberg is uh, working on the seven-part miniseries. Uh, really? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, for oh, HBO. Oh, amazing. For, for HBO. Miniseries, and, I, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I think you are about to say that miniseries is a good format for this, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm currently watching The Winds of War. Have you ever had the pleasure of this? The, the television, yeah. television, yeah. television yeah. of Herman Wokes? Yeah. 
amazing set of novels, which I first became aware of. These are these are these are World War II dramatizations that that pull off a, a difficult trick where you have you know the intermingling of fictional and historical mm-hmm. characters and somehow succeeds. And you're watching it and you feel like it's not going to work, and then somehow it keeps working. And my actually my first encounter with Herman Woke was as a as a relatively young reader. I came across this review by Gore Vidal that Vidal wrote in the 70s. And he was this sort of show-offy piece where he reads the top 10 New York Times bestsellers and provides sort of, generally speaking, searing demolitions (laughs) of each one of them as he goes. And he gets to Woke and he starts making fun of it. This would have either been Winds of War or War and Remembrance. I can't remember which one it it picks up. And he, he sort of begins demolishing it and making fun of it. And then he kind of starts admitting, you know, through through this capsule of the longer piece that, you know, I just can't help myself. I kind of like it. Like I kind of, I kind of want to keep reading it. It's pretty enjoyable, and that's true of the of the books and of the miniseries, which also combines some phenomenal performances. Robert Mitchum as the main the naval officer. Victor Henry, yeah. Victor Henry, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. is, is a towering and amazing performance, and then several other of the performances though just do not work. They just objectively fail. <laughs> his 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 daughter in law, who's played by then I guess the sort of world famous Ally McGraw who was a huge movie star, but it just fails. It is not a successful performance. And yet the whole thing is quite watchable. And the miniseries format to the original point does kind of give you the space to explore things that are just inherently complex. You know, exactly. how the war starts and how it affects individuals is a just extremely complicated yeah. question to, to, to unfold the answer to. And, you know, 13 hours is about right as a start. Yeah, um, I completely a- agree. Yeah. And I think, I think what, what, with Ridley Scott or, or Spielberg, again, if, if I'm in there, if I can take that kind of be so presumptuous as to offer any advice, is is not necessarily to look at Napoleon through kind of prism of his life, but do something like Rome did, right? The HBO, mm-hmm. where you take characters who are close enough to these remarkable events and then and reenact the life of you know Caesar, but through the eyes of those two soldiers and same can be done with napoleon right choose one of his either of ministers marshals or just soldiers officers and then retrace his footsteps through that because there is there is so much that you can do with this because it's one of the most well-studied periods with enormous amount of material so when ridley scott asks us you know if historians were there no, we were not there in person, but we were there because we have wealth of material surviving from it. That, that's right. I should have cited at the top of this recording, because I'm, I'm not a military historian, of course, and so I feel like I stand slightly outside of this, but he, he did call out your profession directly. There, there was direct <laughs> fire from Ridley Scott to the, to, to the military historians and historians of the world as to whether or not you have a right to comment on his work. Although I would not say it's a fire, it's a misfire, <laughs> because he clearly doesn't understand, he doesn't understand what historians actually do. <laughs> well, so there's this Spielberg project. No doubt, there, you, Alex, you have to get one of these consulting gigs and actually get in there and shape it. They're eminently more qualified people than me, but yes, if they call me, I will do it for free. <laughs> I, uh, I, I recently, it hasn't, we haven't released it yet, but I recently interviewed Don Miller author of uh, Masters of the Air, which is coming out as a, as a miniseries here in just a few months. 
And he served as a consultant on that. And as I, I gather, as a consultant on the on, on the Pacific as well, back when, when it came out and obviously had a, had a delightful, what you have to do really is sell one of your books to the, to the, to the studios, Alex, you got to, you must know people or people who know people. You got to, you got to get in there and, and if, make if it. If anyone knows people, it's you. <laughs> help me so I can help you. <laughs> no, I'm not going to, unfortunately, the movie industry is, is, is not something I am particularly well connected in. Um, no, well, I, look, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. So, in, in Mill, again, Spielberg, I'm knowing his the quality of the work he produces. So, I have a higher, higher hopes for it. This has been a pleasure. It's kind of a fun episode, but we've, we've, you and I have recorded quite serious episodes before. I would, I would point listeners. I enjoyed both of our prior, prior recordings, but I would point listeners to our conversation about Kutuzov, and in particular, we have this sort of discussion as part of that episode on Kutuzov's strategic thinking in the course of of 1812. That. To me, and don't 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 get embarrassed here, but to, to, to me was, I, I think, one of the better examples of this show serving its purpose, which is to give people, you know, I, I think that the inattention shown to military history and to, to strategy is actually dangerous because the world is a dangerous place. And I don't think that people are prepared to to be responsible citizens in the face of how the world is actually functioning in 2023 without some understanding. Of military history and strategy, and I thought your, com- your 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 analysis of Kutuzov's thinking and the sort of more universal or at least broader principles that that conversation sheds light on is really what what I, I try to make this show about. And so I'm grateful to you for for coming back a couple times over the years. And listeners should go and check out that episode and, and check out your work. What do you what Thank are you working so on much. right now? What are, what are you writing about? I am uh, finishing up. Uh, a new study on Louisiana Purchase and kind of setting it in a wider context of uh, imperial um, kind of rivalries. So, um, and that's my my big uh, project that probably will come out next next year. But and and another project that I'm pursuing is um, kind of understanding how wars are paid for, especially during Napoleonic and kind of late 18, early 19th century, the close kind of incestuous relationship between finance and war. Amazing, Alexander Mikabridze. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.